0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm very thankful that we are are gathered together this morning in the backdrop of, of, of Advent, recognizing that the Messiah, Jesus, has come. No matter what's happening out in the world, no matter what's happening in here, the Lord has come, and we rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ This morning, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 25. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12, where we hear that Paul makes his appeal to Caesar. One of the things that I bet you have in your pocket right now, or maybe you have in your hand right now, is your cell phone. Use it all the time. Use it to send texts, You know, order things on Amazon, take pictures. All sorts of stuff. You probably look at it dozens of times each day. And yet, as many times as we look at it, until the sun shines on it in in such a particular way, you don't tend to notice that it's covered in fingerprints all over. You know, that glass is like a fingerprint magnet, and they're all over it. Well, in today's passage, though Luke doesn't mention the Lord specifically in verses 1-12... through God's providential fingerprints are everywhere. And I hope that we will see them. And we recognize that God is directing all things to fulfill his plans and his purposes, even directing those who would oppose his messenger. 20 years before this, um, the events of this passage took place, Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter nine. And Jesus speaks to Ananias who was, Fearful of Paul because he'd heard about what Paul had been like. And Jesus tells him, says, Paul is, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And God is providentially causing these events to pass in our, in our passage this morning. So that Paul, even through suffering, is taking the gospel to the places of highest power. The people of greatest influence in the world are hearing the gospel proclaimed as he preaches faithfully. And so let's look at these fingerprints, let's look for them, and let's be encouraged. For the Lord's promises and his plans, they uphold this whole story that we're gonna be talking about in Acts 25. And our main idea this morning that I hope that we see clearly is this. Nothing will stop the Lord from taking the gospel where he wants it to go. He says the gospel is gonna go to Rome and that's exactly where where he's gonna take it. And he wants the gospel to go before kings and governors and that's exactly what happens. So brothers and sisters, look in your Bibles with me. We're gonna start in verse one of chapter 25. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him, seeking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, Let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar. Have I committed any offense? Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing To the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you will go. As chapter 25 opens, Paul finds himself in Caesarea. He's in the seat of power for the Romans in all of Judea. And he's in Herod's palace, surrounded by the imperial might of the Roman army, which might feel comforting except for the fact that he is in their presence as a prisoner. It's not the best place to be. It's now been two years since Paul first stood before Felix, and Felix has refused and continues to refuse to rule on the charges against him from the Jews and instead keeps him in prison, hoping that Paul would pay him a bribe. He's trying to extort it out of him. And Paul's been kept in the dark regarding Felix's plans for him because he knows, he doesn't know what Felix's plans are, but he knows one thing, that change is coming because a new, governor, a new governor is being brought in to take Felix's place. So in our passage this morning, as we're thinking about, as we're looking at the kind of the flow of the passage, the facts of the situation are pretty straightforward in the text. But the intrigue of the passage is revealed when we see that the motives of the people are anything but straightforward. We see the Jews continuing to bear their grudge with murderous intent against Paul. And we see the Roman governor who's seeking to bring stability and peace without much regard for justice or truth. And lastly, we see Paul defend his actions and assert his rights for the sake of the gospel and for the truth so this is going to be kind of the flow as we walk through the passages today. We're going to be thinking about what are the motives of each of these people, the Jewish opposition, the Roman governor, and last, the apostle Paul. So let's begin with the first one, the Jewish, Jewish opposition. You know, Paul's been sitting in jail, as, as I've already said, for, for two years. If, as he's been in jail, he's, he's had the thought, you know, I wonder, I wonder if the heat's died down now from the Jews on them wanting to you know, pursue me and, and kill me. And we see at the beginning of chapter 25, if that was his thought, the opposite has actually taken place. Their hatred only burns hotter. The cancer of their, full, their fury is fully grown. It's metastasized and spread throughout the organs of their leadership to the chief priests and to the Sanhedrin. And where previously in chapter 23 were they, and this was bad, they coordinated with 40 assassins to try to take Paul out. Now, instead of just that, they're actually have cut out the middleman and decided to murder him themselves. And so as Chris said ago, a couple weeks ago, in their upside down attempt, they're, they're ready to violate the law to try to vindicate the lawgiver. They're trying to do something evil in some ways to honor the Lord. So we've we got to ask the question, why do they want to kill Paul? Why are they so riled up against him? And I think it's because they can't refute the truth of his testimony nor his theology. In chapter 24, Paul has, has exposed the weakness of their testimony in his, in his account before Felix. Where he says, I confess this to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. He says, I believe all of the law and the prophets. And I'm teaching a resurrection that you yourselves believe. He's showing that their charges have no merit. And so since they can't prove their case by words, and they don't have any witnesses that show that he's done any wrong, and since their case is essentially dismissed by Felix, they've determined that one way or the other we're going to kill him that's going to be the outcome that they want. They're going to kill Paul on the way to Jerusalem as he goes. And if they don't kill him there, they're going to have the Jews themselves kill him for breaking the law, which he didn't actually do. And if, and if that's not successful, they're going to have the Romans try to kill him by saying that he's gone against Caesar and Rome. They have one outcome in mind. Only one thing matters to them, that Paul has to be put to death either by their hands or the hands of the Romans. They don't care. They just want him dead. And we see in this passage that outcome-based justice, a justice that is just focused on the outcome, is not justice at all. You see, that the attitude of the chief priests and the religious leaders, it's not surprising to God at all. For Jesus spoke of this idea prophetically in John 16 when he's telling his disciples just listen to these words in John 16. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. This is one of the most stunning or shocking things I think that he could say, speaking about the depths of deception and how it can lead you to really dark Evil places. He says that you could be so deceived that you could actually be murdering one of God's chosen messengers and actually say that it's good. You could be so deluded by lies that you would be willing to lie yourself and do something completely unjust and think that you're obeying the Lord. This is one of those places that that Jesus exposes our hearts. He, he puts his thumb on our pulse to help us to see that there is darkness here that you need to see. There's places that you have in your heart that are bad and need to be addressed. In Paul's case, his opponents have decided that the outcome is the thing that matters most. They disregard justice. They just want him dead, whatever it takes. They're willing to make up a lie. They're willing to make a bribe. They're willing to murder to get what they want. They did this to the prophets in the Old Testament. And they did this to Jesus. Now they're trying to do it to Paul. And you can hear in Jesus his sadness as a lamb of God as he laments over Jerusalem where he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And hear the righteous anger of the Lion of Judah, Jesus, our Savior, from that same section, Matthew 23, verse 23. In this, you hear his righteousness and holiness and justice brought to bear. where He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. They have this picture in mind. They have this goal in sight and and they're hell-bent on doing exactly that, getting Paul to be killed. They have this view that the outcome justifies the means. But again, outcome-based justice is not justice. You know, if you think that your view is so right, and there's only one view that's right in that sense, it can lead you to some pretty dark places. There was an article written just the past couple weeks where a person was was so convinced that abortion is right that they said adoption is actually wrong. Adoption is bad. It should not be allowed. Abortion is actually good. There's so much pain in adoption that you shouldn't allow it. But instead, abortion is better. They have one outcome in mind and are willing to twist the facts. Instead of recognizing, they're saying that it's better to murder a child in the womb than for adoption to be taking place. And we as Christians know that adoption is is good. It's right. God the Father himself adopts us into his family. He makes a way for us to be his children. And so we would, we would reject that view outright and say that it is not just wrong, but it's evil. But you see, brothers and sisters, we, we should care about the truth because God cares about the truth. We don't just want a trial to be political theater. We don't want the appearance of justice without the substance of it. Not when we've been wronged and especially not when our lives are on the line. But as we think about this, we need to step back for a second. Because it can be really easy for us to condemn the Pharisees and yet still have the heart of a Pharisee within us. We need to, we need to think hard about what, what does it look like or how do you know that you have the heart of these religious leaders? We need to think through some, some different examples and, and see like where, where might we find this in us? not just in them. You just think about this, you know, if you are a student and you you have a big project and you don't do well at it. Or you're in in a workplace and you're on a team and your team doesn't do well and meet your goals. What do you what do you start to say? Do you start to say, "Man, that teacher they didn't do a good job instructing us today." They didn't give enough time on the assignment. That boss, he's really harsh and he does this. Or you start to talk about your teammates like, man, they didn't pull their weight. I was working super hard. I did all these things, but, but they, they weren't up to the task. You begin to, you begin to blame shift and, and point out others. You're, you're desiring to, in some sense, you know, have your reputation remain intact. You want people to think better of you. And so you're willing to, to point out and blame others so that they don't see reality. Or if something's exposed where you made an error, there's times when you might lie and say that you didn't do that. That's not really what happened. Because again, you're desiring to maintain your name or your reputation instead of speaking the truth. You know, if you're in an argument with a friend or a relative or your spouse, there's a disagreement. Conflict. Do you do you approach that conflict like you're just trying to accumulate more information, to gather up more charges that you can show really how wrong they are and how right you are? As you talk to your friends about it or your counselors, do you are you really wanting them to say, Man, you've really been hard done here? You're right, like they are the ones totally in the wrong. Instead of trying to examine and think through like where am I contributing to this issue? And what would righteousness actually look like for me to pursue in this place? And what would it look like for me to be gracious and kind and desiring restoration instead of just building a case? There's times as well when you take that to the extent to where you say, man, they're, they're awful. You know, you're, you're just mulling it around in the darkness. You're thinking about something that was said or something that was done to you. And you just let it spiral. Think about it day after day. Maybe you have conversations in your mind that didn't actually happen and you're you know, infusing other things on those people. You're giving faults and offenses to them maybe that they didn't even do. Making it worse and worse in your mind to the point where you would say, they are dead to me because of what they've done. There's also times where we might use guilt or manipulation Deceit or flattery to get what we want. Just like Tertullus last week, if you remember, where he's trying to butter up Felix and talk about how great Felix is. He hated Felix. And he's speaking in one way just to try to get something out of Felix. But I, I bet we do that too sometimes. There's people we talk that way too, just to try to get something out of them. If we're honest we all see a bit of the religious leaders in ourselves. The problem isn't just out there with those people, but it's also in here. It's in me. And nothing that we do is hidden before the eyes of God. Everything that we do is as if it's done right before his face. He's staring right there. He's right in front of it. He sees it plainly. All of our sin, all of our deceit, all of our blame shifting, every act of injustice that we promote or condone is done before the face of God. And we are accountable for it. What do we do? Where do we turn? Where do we go? As Christians, Brothers and sisters, we rejoice to know that God's fingerprints are all over us. He doesn't leave us in our sin, but he pursues us. And he convicts us and he leads us in repentance and restores us so that we would love him and that we would love our brothers and sisters, that we would love our spouses well, we would love our friends well, we love our neighbors well. He doesn't leave us in that darkness, but he calls us to himself in repentance and faith. So that we would be able to serve him with righteousness in every aspect of our lives. I think it's important for us to ask the question of of ourselves ask it of yourself where where do I see myself living like the religious leaders? My encouragement to you is to repent, to confess that sin to God. And come to Jesus and know that you have restoration and peace in him. He has paid your debt. He has covered you by his blood if you're in Christ. He already declares that you are holy, but he also desires that you would walk in the righteousness that he provides. And so we see the darkness here. But even to the Jews in the story, these opponents who were helping on murdering Paul, plotting it here for years. The Lord is patient toward them. And he extends grace to them through Paul's proclamation of the gospel. Once again, Paul is given the opportunity to proclaim before the Jews that the Messiah has come. Again, this is what we're celebrating during the Advent season. The reason that we you know, gather together for Christmas celebrations is proclaiming the reality that God has come in the flesh to save sinners. He's come to the earth to teach us what God is like all the more and to lead us in righteousness. He he came to die so that we could be free. And all of history has changed at the coming of the Son of God. And we rejoice. So as we think about the main idea of, of this section, we again recognize that nothing will stop the advancement of the gospel that the Lord desires. Where he wants it to go, it will go. Jesus wants Paul to go to Rome and share good news with kings and that's exactly what he's going to do. He will do it with certainty because the Lord desires that he would do that. So let's turn our attention from the Jewish opposition to Festus, the governor. See, Paul's already found himself testifying before a Roman governor for for two years. And now he's going to have the opportunity to speak before a second Roman governor. And a big piece of the Jews' plan against Paul comes down to timing. As we heard just last week, Felix has been a disastrous governor. The Jews hate him. And he's sown the seeds of chaos in the cities of of Judea. There's rebellion taking place. And if there's one thing that Rome can't stand, it's revolt in their lands and in the people that they govern. So Rome sends Festus. Felix is out. Festus is in. He's thought to be a fair ruler, and he has a much more noble birth and background than Felix did. And his mission is to get the people of Judea under control. And so knowing that Festus has been sent to improve relations, the Jews seek to press this to their advantage. Almost immediately after Festus arrives, we see that he's hitting the ground running. Verse 1 tells us that three days after arriving in Caesarea, He goes up to Jerusalem and meets with the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews. You know, no doubt he's wanting to assess the situation on the ground. He's trying to understand how bad things are, what steps need to take place to to improve the dynamics. And he wants to improve the relationship with these Jewish leaders in particular. And it's here that the priests make their move. Do it really subtle way. They asked Festus to just do us a favor. Now, if you're in a trial, if you're a defendant on trial, what's one thing that you don't want to happen? You don't want to see, you know, if you're the defendant, you don't want to see the prosecutor up talking to the judge, you know, hamming it up there, giving him a fist bump, and then the, and then the judge saying, oh, yeah, I'll be glad to do you a favor, prosecutor. Right? You don't want him to do a favor. right? If, if you saw that happen, what do you think? As the defendant, I'm done. <laughs> I'm toast. It's over. Right? We haven't even had the trial, and it's not going to go well. Because you don't want the judge to do a favor for anyone in the court. And that's what, that's what they're asking for. Verse 2 and 3 say this, The chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that they summon him to Jerusalem. And Luke is helpful because he tells us why. Because they were planning to ambush him and kill him on the way. But you can see the temptation that's facing Felix here, or Festus here. The whole purpose that he's been sent to the area is to bring stability, to fix the problems of Felix that came before. He doesn't know Paul, and he really doesn't care for Paul in any real or substantial way. In fact, he's probably not met Paul until he goes back to Caesarea for the trial. But the stability of the region is the thing that's really important to him as the governor. Doing this one little favor would put him on the good graces of the Jewish leaders, and he could make things so much better, as long as you don't care about things like truth and justice. But as tempting as this may seem, at least initially, Festus does not give in to having Paul move to Jerusalem for trial. And it's most likely because of Paul's Roman citizenship. Over and over again, God is protecting Paul and, and, and leading him even against opposition to where he's able to go to Rome. And here, Paul's Roman citizenship protects him again because Paul is a Roman citizen. He's entitled to a trial before his accusers in front of Caesar's appointed governor. And so Festus's duty to Roman law trumps his desire to do the Jews a favor. And he says, "'Let the men of authority among you go down with me, "'and if there's anything wrong about this man,' Let them bring charges against him. And after staying in Jerusalem for eight or 10 days, he goes back to Caesarea and almost immediately takes seat on the tribunal and brings Paul before him. And so when the trial before Festus happens in verses 7 through 12, we see that the Jewish leaders are bringing serious charges against Paul. These are are Luke's words, but also Luke tells us that. Though they bring very serious charges, they can't prove them. See that in verse 7. In other words, they have no witnesses and no evidence to back up their claims. There's no proof that he's broken the Jewish laws, as they've said. So there's no reason for him to stand trial in Jerusalem. And Paul refutes the claims that they make. He says he's made no offense against the law, against the temple, or against Caesar. It's his word against theirs. And they don't have any proof So this should bring the end of the trial to hand, shouldn't it? Sadly, that's not what happens. It says in verse 9, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, it's the second time you hear that, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? You know, if this was a TV show, this is the part of the TV show where there's the cutaway. And, and Paul's sitting in the office, and he just looks at the camera, and he shakes his head. He's like, seriously? No, I don't want to go to Jerusalem. I don't want to go to the place where they're trying to kill me. But it's, it's the sheer cowardice of Festus to even offer this as a suggestion to Paul. Dr. Moeller puts it this way. He says, Festus is pursuing stability over justice. And the reason he's doing it is because it's politically advantageous to do that. But just think about this. How much abuse has been covered up in the world by making stability more important than justice? How many organizations have covered up abuse that's happened in there because the the they don't want it to come out because it could hurt the bottom line of their institution? Or, or how many even ministries at times, because of the the work that they've done, just cover up injustice because they value stability over justice. And how many times have the guilty walked free because of favoritism unduly shown? Because they have family in high places or they've given generous donations and so they, they have favor that allows them to go free, though justice is actually required. See, we as the people of God are to be the ones who bring injustice into the light, who expose it no matter what it costs us, even if that injustice is from us. It's to be brought to the light so that it can be forgiven, you know, that we can confess and repent. There can be restoration. In 2 Chronicles 19, 6 and 7, which may not be the most familiar passage to you, Jehoshaphat is encouraging the judges of Judah. And this is his encouragement to them. He says, Consider what you do, for you judge not the man, you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. He's encouraging judges that you are a representative of the Lord in some sense, because the Lord has placed you in authority to make right judgments. And while injustice may flourish for a season, there is no injustice with the Lord our God. Though human judges show partiality, our God shows none. The failures of human justice create in us a deep longing for a God who is perfectly just in all of his ways, a God who can see everything, who knows what is true versus what is a lie, and who is always going to do what is right, who will bring justice on both the innocent and the guilty. We recognize that human justice fails in different ways including the reality that sometimes people die before they're brought to justice. They escape human justice in some sense. But the reality is they will not escape justice because all must stand before the Lord. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So at the end of the day, our God will judge rightly. He will not let one sin go unpunished or one thing remain hidden. True, lasting, and ultimate justice will be poured out. And of that you can be sure. Justice will roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. This is both extremely comforting if we are in Christ, because we recognize that at the cross is the place where true justice and mercy meet. Because of our faith in Jesus, we have confidence that He has absorbed the punishment that we deserved, that He has taken our sin upon Himself, and that He gives to us His righteousness. If you're a Christian, you do not have to be fearful of God's judgment because you have already been declared holy and clean and pure by the blood of the Lamb. But if you're not in Christ, one day you will stand before the Lord of glory And justice will fall on you in an unrelenting, in an unceasing way. To the exact measure of your sins for all of eternity. I I don't say that in a flippant way. I just say it because it's true. Left to your own deeds, your own self, you have absolutely no hope. Hope. So, come to Christ Jesus. Come to Jesus. Place your faith in him and his completed work on your behalf and you will be saved. This is the thing that we see in this passage. There's a a longing for justice and righteousness in the rulers and in the people. And we recognize that through Christ, we are transformed. We were sinners. We were pursuing the same things the people of this passage were and yet God in his kindness in mercy offer salvation and freedom to those who trust in Jesus but even as festus wavers even as he's thinking hard about giving in to this desire for stability over justice the lord's plans are not stopped he's setting the stage for paul to take the gospel to rome and he ultimately delivers paul out of the situation And so let's look at the last thing, Paul's appeal, Paul's um, motivations in these verses. So as Paul stands before his accusers and before the Roman governor, the stakes couldn't be any higher for him for his life literally hangs in the balance of the trial. Nevertheless, Paul has great reason for hope and confidence. For one, the truth is on his side. He has great reason for hope and confidence there. He's speaking truthfully, but also... In Acts 23.11, after Paul had to be rescued again by the Romans because of the threat of violence against him, Jesus comes up and he stands next to Paul. You can just picture, he doesn't say this in the text, but I, I think he probably put his arm around Paul, comforting him, encouraging him, telling him, Lord, you're not alone, Paul. On one of the darkest days of Paul's life, he understands that he is not alone. Christ is with him. Whatever comes, Christ is with him. And Jesus says, take courage. If you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. And so for two years, this promise of Jesus has probably been before the mind of Paul, thinking about it. He's reflecting on what God might do. And just as the promise that Jesus made to Paul comes true, we know that Christ is able to strengthen us through our best and our most difficult days. We know that for those who love God, He's able to make all things work together for good for those who, are, who love God and are called according to His purposes. It's by the strength that Jesus supplies that we can endure all things, whether we have plenty or little, and whether we're hungry or hungry, We have lots to eat. I imagine that the years in prison did much to cultivate in Paul a heart of thankfulness and a heart of dependence upon his king. Thankful that the Lord sustains him and a a regular reminder that I need him. He's all that I have. And as Paul is reflecting on what the Lord is doing, as he's thinking through verse, you know, like the the promise he's got to go to Rome, I think it's right after verse 9 where Festus makes his offer to have Paul tried in Jerusalem, that Paul comes to a realization that he's going to be going to Rome but not as a free man. He's going to be going as a prisoner. If you look in verse 10 through 12, it says, But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer, and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered to Caesar, you have appealed, and to Caesar, you, you will go, or you shall go. See, Paul's answer is bold and full of courage and clarity. This is where I ought to be tried, he tells Festus, because the religious... Leaders, they've made their case against me and it has no merit, as you know, verse 10 says. But here Paul sets out his case clearly, asking me to help Festus make a right decision. If there's nothing to the Jews' case against me, no one can give me up to them. For the trial has no merit. They have no claim on me. But if I've committed anything that's deserving of death against Caesar or Rome, you have to be the one to make that decision. Because you're Caesar's man. He's not trying to to hide. He's not trying to avoid what's actually due. But he says, I want justice. I want it to be right. I don't want it to be based on the truth. His courage and integrity before the governor stands out against the backdrop of the lies and the deception that happened behind the scenes. He wants a fair trial. But because Festus doesn't seem willing to judge rightly, he makes his appeal to Caesar. For he has the right as a Roman citizen facing charges like this to do that. And though Paul appeals to Caesar, he knows ultimately his appeal for protection and justice is really to the rescue of Christ Jesus. He appeals to the highest authority that's available to him. But this is a double-edged sword, right? Because Caesar has the power of life or death to those that stand before him. And there's a higher authority than that, which is our Lord, who has the ultimate authority over life and death. When you think seriously about what it means to stand before him. But through this whole account, we see the providential fingerprints of the Lord leading these events. He's protecting Paul through a flawed leader. He's giving Paul a way of escape so that his life isn't forfeit to those who want to kill him but he's also putting him on a path to Rome. As we look ahead to next week, we see that Paul is going to share Christ with King Agrippa and Bernice. The very thing that was said he was going to do, share with kings, he does in the very next section. Though this may not have been the way that he would originally chosen to go to Rome, the Lord has directed Paul to be exactly where he needs to be to have the most impact for the kingdom. And as the Lord has his fingerprints all over Paul's story, I want to encourage you. He's doing similar things in your life. Like a potter to the clay, he is molding you and making you into the likeness of Christ. His fingerprints in the clay as he works them with his own hands. God is leading you now through whatever trials you might be facing, whether you feel his presence or whether you do not, to conform you to Christ to increase your joy in him, to break the hold of the things of this world on you, and it calls you to long for your true home. Brothers and sisters, we serve a king of justice who is righteous forever. Ultimately, to Jesus, we appeal, and to Jesus, we will go. We hear this in John fourteen three. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you will be also. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as we appeal to Christ Jesus our Lord, it's to him we shall go, to you we shall go. Father, I'm thankful that you are a righteous king, a perfect father a ruler who does righteousness and justice, who doesn't take bribes, who doesn't do favors, but instead offers salvation and life through Jesus Christ, your son. Father, this table before us pictures the salvation and the hope that we have. In it, we see clearly, Lord, the way in which you make us clean and pure before you. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us great joy as we take communion today. And I pray that you would lead us in faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.